I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a a writer, writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Our guest today is Lydia Conklin. Lydia Conklin has received a Stegner Fellowship, a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award, three Pushcart Prizes, a Creative Writing Fulbright in Poland, a grant from the Elizabeth George Foundation, a Creative Writing Fellowship from Emory University, work study and tuition scholarships from Breadloaf, and fellowships from McDowell, Yaddo, Hedgebrook, Jurassic, the James Merrill House, and elsewhere. Their fiction has appeared in McSweeney's American Short Fiction, The Paris Review, One Story, and VQR. They have drawn cartoons for The New Yorker and Narrative Magazine and graphic fiction for The Believer, Lenny Letter, and the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. They've served as the Helen Zell Visiting Professor at the University of Michigan and are currently an, an assistant professor of fiction at Vanderbilt University. Their story collection, Rainbow Rainbow, was long listed for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Award and the Story Prize. Welcome, Lydia. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you both for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are so excited to have so you. Happy I mean, to have you. This is, you are an amazing person and like truly have the dream career. And um, we cannot wait to to talk to you about all of this. I'm so excited. That's so nice. Thank you. We're so excited to talk to you about Rainbow Rainbow, which we had the absolute privilege of reading over the past week. Um, And we want to hear just a little bit uh, of it from you, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, I was thinking I would read the beginning of Sunny Talks. Yay. Yay. Okay. Hunched over my computer in my cubicle, I prepare for my nephew's visit by watching one of his YouTube videos. His backdrop is his bedroom, the walls painted black, centaur and mermaid posters freshly hung. His mascots, he calls them. He pops into the frame, flaunting his naked, scar-free chest. 
He's 15, but looks 10. His wrists are so frail, his shoulders so narrow, that I worry he'll break his arms with his eager, sweeping gestures. His audience is 10 or 20,000 people who litter his page with rainbow emojis, kissing emojis, shining sun emojis, interrupted by trolls reminding him he's a damaged and mutilated female. Welcome to Sonny's channel. He rolls his eyes like everyone knows already. Sonny was always his name, so when people threaten to publish his real name, he has a laugh, thrusting his head back against the wall of his bedroom, which is beside my older sister's bedroom in their little house in Shrewsbury, though Sonny doesn't reveal where he dispatches from. He's learned from millennial elders on the platform at least the basics of safe internet practices. He lifts the rabbit my sister bought him and holds it to the camera, pink pads swelling to blot out the screen. The rabbit died a few months after this video of nose cancer. My assistant, Sonny says, Almond Senior. He bounces the rabbit's haunches, pronouns, they, them. He snorts, Almond Senior's non-binary. The rabbit's cute, cancer-filled nose presses against Sonny's cute little boy nose. So trendy now, aren't you? I pull back from the screen into the green light of the office. I've watched the video a dozen times, awaiting this moment, my breath so quick it's audible, perking my ears for Sonny's tone. Is the joke that the rabbit has an identity, or is the joke that the identity is non-binary? Sonny crops the frame at his waist, as though he has hips to hide. He updates his perspective regularly on crucial queer Gen Z issues such as pansexuality, passing privilege, cisnormativity, he-him lesbians, PGPs, chasers, and demiromanticism. He applies gel to his hair so it crests sweetly over his forehead, a neighbor boy from a 50s sitcom. I live hundreds of miles from Sonny now, but this evening my sister will drop him at my apartment in Trenton. Tomorrow, Sonny and I will attend a convention of trans YouTubers in Philadelphia. Sonny invited me a few weeks back, explaining that it wasn't cool to go with his mom, that he preferred me, his aunt, which was fishy because he loves my sister, but I guess everyone grows up sometime. Last week, he sent a video message of himself singing Streets of Philadelphia with a plastic bell, the crack drawn on in Sharpie, nested in his soft disc of hair, and a portrait of Ben Franklin taped to the wall behind. I pat my blouse to absorb the sweat from my palms. Tonight, I'll discuss my identity with Sonny, tell him what's been true my whole life, though only now is there language for it. I hate to burden a kid with my issues, but he's the only trans person I know. Ah, uh, the write-up, Eric says, looming over my desk. My colleagues don't look directly at me, as though I could infect them through the eyes. But I hold out hope that Eric could become a friend. He visits my desk instead of emailing me. His earring is either queer or cheesy, same with his spiked, thinning hair. Once I'm more comfortable in my body, I'll ask him for a drink at the sports bar. I pinch the report from my printer tray and clap it into a folder. Eric snatches the file as well change my mind. I'll stop there. Thank you. Lydia, I'm so glad you read from Sunny Talks for our listeners and for Lindsay and I tonight, because like some of the other stories in the collection, but I feel like this one, maybe especially, it feels like a story very much of now. Not that... This could, you know, this this kind of thing couldn't have happened maybe five years ago or maybe five years in the future, but it just feels like a story that is so much you could hand that story to almost anybody in our country, I feel like, or anybody in the country. And they would have touchstones in it 
whether it be from their own life, from friends, from family members. And I love stories that feel like they are taking place in the literal present because there's a fearlessness to resisting timelessness in stories Mm -hmm. that I really love. And I was, and yet there's obvious, very, very strong choices you made, you know, the word YouTube appears once YouTuber shows up another time, but really you don't even need to say that for a, for a present day reader to be right with you. And I just wanted to know what was it like writing a story that is so in the present right now, feels like it could come out, you know, next week. And did you modulate that at all? Was that something that you were thinking about as you were drafting? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. I, I feel like, For me, yeah, I agree with you that I always want to lean into like the specificity of the moment, whatever that moment may be, and not worry about timelessness. So like I teach college students and a lot of times they want to be like, oh, this story could take place anywhere at any time for any readership. And it's like, I just feel like the more specific you can be, the more universal it will feel, even though it feels, you know, like a contradiction. But I think you're yeah, but you're totally right that it's like writing about the actual this minute is different and it feels riskier. Like I I have another story in here that is set in sort of within the first year of COVID and mm-hmm. with both of the stories, yeah, it's like there is a risk that, you know, looking back, no one will remember YouTube for some reason in 20 years. <laughs> some other platform that became famous or it's like, what the heck? Or like, you know, the pandemic, when I, at the time I wrote that story, it was like the pandemic could have gotten 3000 times worse. And this would be like a quaint moment before everyone mm. like intestines melted in the screen. Oh. <laughs> it's just like, I, I don't know like what it's hard because you don't have the perspective on the, on the time when you're writing it. But I, I had been, I, I had felt like I was waiting for a moment like this to happen because before sort of a lot of things started to change around queer politics with Trump's election and beyond, it was like I was writing a lot of stories that were set in the Clinton administration and just about the challenges of being queer in those times. And mm-hmm. my agent was like, this collection needs more breadth. And it was like, I felt like things needed to happen in queer politics and what it feels like to be queer so that I could write different stories to kind of like expand the scope of the collection. So I I think I didn't want to wait on it. So your, so your agent was looking at your collection and saying, there's stuff happening now that you should be talking about. No, actually it was before Trump's election and things did start to change. And it was just like a lot of the stories were set in the time period of like the black winter of new England or the suburbs. And it was like just kids, you know, struggling about being queer or trans or gender divergent and not really dealing with like the changing landscape of queerness because not enough had changed. So Mm. then when things did change, it was so excited to write about all the changing dynamics that I do feel like the one difference with the stories that are more 
current is that I, it's a little, it was harder for me to access the humor. Whereas like the younger kids stories, I felt like I could access the humor more because they happened so long ago that I had that different perspective on them. Mm -hmm. Is that something that is important to you for a story to be working? I mean, is that something that you have to have kind of there to even keep, keep working at a story? humor I mean I was gonna yeah. ask you that as well because um I was looking at your comics and you are so funny and and the but the comics are also sometimes so dark <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're just like these delightful drawings and then it's like oh my god that is so dark yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah and so I'm glad Alex asked you that because I feel like humor is um like really important and it's it's present in all of these stories but in different ways like you were getting at mm -hmm. um so as you're, you know, to piggyback off of Alex, like as you're sitting down to write these, you know, are you, are you thinking like, oh, this is going to be funny or is it just coming naturally? It usually comes naturally. And yeah, sometimes like I have trouble accessing it. And I think it was, that was like a big sort of breakthrough early in my career before any of these stories were written that my stories were like very very serious and then people are like this is so weird because you're funny as a person your stories are so serious and I realized my per I wasn't allowing my personality to really come through into the stories and that that why, really why do you think that was I think because I had just thought like oh writing is serious and like <laughs> serious, I don't know and, and I it was when I was very young like in college really mm. that this was going on and and just after and then I was like oh people like what do I have but my personality that kind of makes me unique so I wanted to infuse that and build a style around the way I talk and the way I relate to the world so I kind of had I kind of worked on my style through humor was like a big part of it. Mm. Do you remember Lydia, the, the writer or maybe a story, the novel, whatever it was that kind of unlocked that for you as a writer? Ooh, I'm trying to think. I, you know what? I think it was probably Lori Moore because she is one of my most heroes. And I just love how she's able to have stories that are so hilarious, but then so gutting. Like that's yes. like the story dance in America is one of my favorite stories. And I just feel like I laugh when I'm reading it. And then you get to the end and it just like, you feel like you've got a knife in the mm -hmm. chest. It's so brutal, but it's so, it. I just feel like to be able that if you can make someone laugh, or cry like those are just the most extreme reactions you can give a reader so that's kind of what I try to achieve she blurbed your book yeah she did I know are you are you friends with her I'm I sort of so she um actually was my grad school advisor and now Whoa. I'm lucky enough to be in the same department as her so I've got <sighs> her more as an adult and that she is so she's so amazing so yeah she's definitely my hero that's amazing yeah you cool. um you write I guess I'm noticing this because it, it's something that's hard for me to do but you write joy so well mm. and oh, I, I just wanted to hear about that experience because you know we've been talking about humor and you're a funny person but that doesn't always that doesn't always mean that you're a joyful person yeah. <laughs> um, but I want to know about that aspect of your personality if that's part of it or if that's something that you know that you work at in your writing yeah, I think I had to, 
I think that somewhat comes through. It kind of is tied to my like main objective writing, which is that I wanted to depict queer and trans people the way like people like from based on experiences of my life and the realities around my life, as opposed to like the queer media that I grew up with, where it's lots of times very dour and like, you know, I, I just remember like as a teenager watching the beginning of boys don't cry over and over and not oh getting to horrible parts. And just like, cause there is joy in that opening. So opening. much joy. And there's joy at the end. And it's weird that you brought that up because I was thinking about boys don't cry so much as I read your book. Oh, really? Yeah. Especially that, that first story. Um, no, you keep going. You keep going. Oh no, no. I'm, I, I think that was basically, it was just, yeah, I wanted to like, show that there's joy and nuance and that people can be messy and mess up and don't have to be heroes or victims but can just be regular people like the dignity that other characters can have on the page so mm-hmm. yeah did i'm so interested in this because uh, do you did you was that objective something that you kind of realized was possible as you were editing Lydia or was that actually something that you had as an imperative early on going through these stories actually creating them I think it did come through early in the creation process yeah it was just like I remember writing a couple of stories and trying to sell them to magazines and people being like editors wanting a certain narrative of coming out and it's like that's not what it is and getting frustrated and then being like why are there only these two to three stories that are acceptable to tell Mm -hmm. um from a queer perspective so I think it but also too like when I was little you know looking I was such a reader and looking for books with queer characters and they're only being able to find kind of like proto-queer children like you know to Could kill- you define that? Sorry, I don't know what that means. Oh, so just basically, if you think of like To Kill a Mockingbird or something, it's like Scout is like this queer seeming child, tomboyish person who you kind of could assume will come, will grow up and become a queer adult, but we don't get that part of the story. You Got can only kind of guess that's what it is, or Carson McCullers, same kind of thing, and like recognizing myself in these children, but then oh, well, where's the future? It's like kind of sad to to not see it. So I wanted to like write stories, not for children, but like that I would have read as a teen or, you know, been like, oh yeah, I see, I see myself in this. I love that. I love that you had, there's so much confidence. I feel like even, even if it didn't feel, I have no idea how it felt, obviously, but I just, I feel like I never write on the front end with that much intentionality. I feel like intentionality comes for me through editing or in kind of understanding what I've put down or yeah. some of what, but I really, I, I, I so admire and am kind of marveled by intentionality that early in the process. I think it, a lot of it, that does come through for me, like you too, and in, in the, um, later in the process especially like story to story like that's kind of my larger purpose but yes story to story I'm like I don't know what the story is until I write it and then think about it and you know realize it but yeah there's a lot of just 
instinct in mm. the actual process. Can you talk a little bit about the beginnings of um, Rainbow Rainbow? Like, can you talk about what it was like putting it together? You know, like, were you writing stories for magazines or journals and then realizing, oh, I want to put these together? Or were you always setting out to to make a collection? Yeah, I think I knew, like, I, I want to have a collection one day, but I kind of thought, like, oh, nobody will want to buy a collection and I'll have to do a novel first and then... Aren't you so sick of that narrative? Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's it's so so annoying. annoying. (laughs) Because there are so many amazing collections and and I don't know, see why that's... I feel like even for like, you know, especially post-COVID, like decreased attention span, it's kind of like Mm -hmm. a easier form for people. But yeah, I just was like, oh, I won't be able to. But then it was, it just, I'm kind of a perfectionist. So it's just taking me so long to finish my novel that I was eventually like, I'm at a point where I need a job. And that was the main motivation was like, I got to get a job. So can we send my collection? My agent was very kind about it and said, yeah, of course. Like, I think there are some benefits to putting it first. So we, that's when we decided to do it, but I was really scared to publish for a long time and afraid of yeah and like just really avoiding it um why i think it just felt like so much exposure and uh, and risk like what if i send it out and it doesn't get accepted and i have to throw it in the trash can after all these years that kind of thing like uh-huh. yeah but then it was actually the experience was much better than i thought like it wasn't it was actually nice and not scary as scary as I had feared yeah I feel like as publishers they see this come in and they're like what (laughs) (laughs) are you kidding me (laughs) no brainer that's so nice well I think it's obvious when I mean I agree with you Lindsay that that is a worn out narrative but I Mm -hmm. think that the reason it's worn out is because so many books are terrible and mm-hmm. the the editors need a line in the email I, and which i do not fault i mean you know i think it's an easy line to put in an email that isn't completely crushing and heartbreaking and i think it is objectively true that if you most readers not writers who are readers but just a general audience reader they're less interested in short story collections i think that is True. I mean, getting my parents to read a short story collection mm. or like, yeah. I, to, I mean, for me, they're my favorite thing, but it's like, I, I think there is a, I think there's like a kernel of truth. And yet for writers, it's so baffling because I'm sure all of us, I mean, Lydia already mentioned Lydia or uh, Lydia already mentioned Lori Moore. It's like, uh, Lori Moore, obviously a brilliant novelist, but I think of her as, a story writer of mm-hmm. like the highest order. How could mm-hmm. you not? Right. The, I mean, dance in America just mentioned, it's like, I don't know. And so many of my favorites are, are I think of them as story writers first, like as a, a badge of honor in a way. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, I see both sides of it, but it's like, it is ridiculous. Cause I feel like, I, and I hadn't actually thought of it, until you said it, Lydia, but I feel like even in the past, like three or four years, there's been so many really strong debut collections um, Mm -hmm. 
that have like launched like a lot of young writers careers and are, you know, people who have gone on to do whatever, but it's just like, I feel like there's been a lot of big successful. um, And like successful in the way that they seem to like have broken out into those readers that wouldn't normally. Right. I was thinking of like Brian Washington. And then I was thinking, uh, that was the one that I immediately thought of. I was like, God, wasn't the first one, wasn't Lot the first one? Like, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, Anyway, I was rambling and on and on and on there. So I apologize. In defense of the short story collection. Yeah. We're here for it. That's right. Yeah, because I feel like it's also, they're not even enough in the culture. Because when I went to grad school, I hadn't even read, or maybe it was an undergrad too, I started to get exposed, but I just was like, oh my God, like these people are amazing. Like Alice Monroe and Raymond Carver, not like the classic people. I was just Mm -hmm. like, I never got exposed really to short stories like you read like a, a couple of oh henry stories in mm-hmm. entry school or something but it's like there there are so many amazing short story writers out there that you that aren't really known about as widely who who are your favorites right now um well i just my my favorite story collection that i read recently is a new one called call and response by hota Tatone moaning and i I love that i love that book so much i i I think it's amazing and it just came out a couple of weeks ago um but yeah that that's kind of the main one that oh and my editor published a collection this year called nobody gets out alive by lee newman that's oh my gosh that's that's your editor yeah oh my gosh (laughs) it it is on my to be read pile uh and has been because i've seen so many people talking about it it's so good it's brilliant like every story in that book is like it just blew me away and i was like I didn't know you like I knew you were a genius but I'm like I I just have no <laughs> idea she was that brilliant like my god it's so good so. don't you kind of hate her now you can come clean yeah. that's okay yeah. nobody's gonna hear this no, I was so grateful to her because I'm like, I love, I just love this book so much. And then I'm like, I can't believe this person spent time on my book. And I don't know. It's just like, wow, I love it. Everybody was talking about that book. Everybody was talking about your book too. It's like, yeah, I feel like your book was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> I don't know if it was because the cover is so striking or the title. Actually, I wanted to ask you about the title. Oh was, yeah. Was the title... Did you know the title of the collection was going to be Rainbow Rambo early on? Because I feel like it signals so much. It signals like it gives you a great sense of some of what the book is going to be. But in a way, I could also see where someone might be like, I don't know, resistant to it being like that. I don't know. I'm just I was curious, like how early you had had the title. It actually came fairly late, I think, like after most of the stories were in place, because I I wanted to have a title that wasn't any of the stories title, but that did speak to a moment, but then also kind of spoke to like the queerness and like the connection and lack of connection that that moment is when 
you know, it's like this fake band that a character speaks of that makes people gay, but it's like a total fantasy that never happened. Um, So that kind of felt like it spoke to a lot of the things that happen in the story. But yeah, I think in the stories, I mean, but I think that it that sometimes I feel like I don't know, like, maybe people got think see that title and the and the cover and think it's going to be not as dark as it is but maybe it's good to trick people I don't know. <laughs> well, and, and that's that's really what i was kind of getting at Lydia, with the like i could see like if if you had like oh maybe a little bit of hesitation at first but then there's something about the fact that it is the word repeated with no comma i know this sounds silly but to me this is yeah. like there's something so much stronger and stranger about that. I feel like just the word twice, when you actually see it <laughs> written out, I feel like it's, I don't know. I feel like it's a, it's a, the more I think about it, the stranger the title gets in a way that is, I feel like, um, it's like, appropriate. it's appropriate for the stories though, because yeah. yes, these are queer stories. Yes. These, this is a queer writer, but, it's not, you know, it's not just, it's like, it's more than that. It's also here are, here are, here's so much more. It's like, I just feel like uh, in the same way where you were talking about, you know, they're initially early on in your career, they're, you're feeling that they're really only wanted to be from editors, you know, a certain type of queer narrative accepted or published. It's like, I feel like the wonderful thing about getting people into this collection is like there's such a there's such a diversity of experience and it's just it's characters from all over i mean it's like i i am fucking rambling tonight no I'm so and sorry. I, I think it's for me like rainbow rainbow is joy joy <laughs> you know so like for you know it gets at it, it's it's getting at a lot of different things i think right yeah which is really cool oh thank you and yeah. it's it's catapult and that's not been in the news at all recently yeah um, <laughs> i know i feel so bad for them i, I know they're God. such a great publisher um i want to hear a little bit from you what it was like working with them yeah i loved it i mean i i feel like i love lee so much and she was such out of the editors i met with when i was selling the book she was the one who was like I can tell you don't need me to like blow smoke up your ass. Like oh. this, these are what, these are the things you have to do. And it was like, I see through your tricks and this oh. is happening. I was like, Oh <laughs> my God, thank you. Because I just don't uh, like kind of bullshitting mm-hmm. and not, I'm just like, tell me what I need to do. Don't <laughs> make me read between the lines. And she just was so brilliant and just, fix things that I'd been struggling with for a decade and couldn't oh fix. God. And then she was just like, boom, done. So I love that. And and then just the, the marketing and PR people there. So they work so hard and they just are so it's nice. And I, I just love them a lot and they did a lot for me. And I just feel like also it's like being a yeah, smaller press, like my book was a lead title for the season and there's no way that would happen to any big press so I I think it was good because I have friends who sold had two book deals at major houses and they really the press just really wanted their novel so they didn't really do anything with the story collection but Catapult like really were got behind it which was amazing 
It's awesome. Did was yours a two book deal or or your novel is, is a different thing? I didn't do a two book deal because I just was scared. I wasn't ready to to send my novel, and I just was scared to sell on a partial because I I don't know. I just felt paranoid about. It. Now I kind of wish I had because then I wouldn't be having to go through it all again. But I didn't. I at the time was too nervous. That's such a remarkable sense of self because I yeah. like I'm. I think I. I mean I know because when I was in the same situation, I was like. Take it, take it all. (laughs) Do you want another one? I'll sell you three. (laughs) All right, whatever. Just make a bolded list. I'll do it all whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's so smart to know, like, I'm not ready for this. I need a little more time. Um, I think that is just incredibly smart and, and like, um, uh, like assured, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, hopefully I won't, I won't be so mad at myself if I can't sell my novel later. But yeah, I did I did feel like I just had an instinct about it, not feeling like I wanted ready to do it. But how long have you been working on it? Um, I've been working on it for only about five years. Okay. This one I had another novel that I worked on for a really long time and I had to eventually throw it away because it just couldn't make it work. I mean, maybe I'd go back to it one day, but yeah, that, that one is, is just about five years. But I feel Lydia, like I love good. that you've, you've said it a couple of times now that you've mentioned throwing stuff away, mm-hmm. because I think most writers talk about, Oh, I put it in a drawer, you know, like <laughs> it's like a little burial site where you can visit it and you're like, I threw it away. <laughs> yes. Yeah, just in the garbage can. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love it. I love that. Moving too. on. The drawer, the drawer, <laughs> yeah. the drawer is the trash. Yeah. yeah, the secret trash that you can't admit is the trash. That's right, secret <laughs> trash. Um, but it, it, do you feel like it's getting to a, a place where you want to start showing it? Yeah, I actually am thinking I will probably send it to my agent in the next couple of weeks because I got some feedback on it. It's been through, she read it a year ago and then I did her feedback and then I got some other friends to do feedback and now I'm, I'm almost ready to give it back to her. So that I'm Oh my gosh. Do you you feel comfortable telling us what it's about or do you want to keep that? Oh, sure. No, I can. It's, it's basically it deals it's about a folk singer who um is does some horrible thing and is afraid she'll get canceled so she basically gives up songwriting and goes to teach at this camp and then it so it deals with like some of the same stuff as this book like queerness gender um like non-binary identity but also deals with questions of like ethics around art making and queer appropriation and those kinds of things that I've just been obsessed with in recent years. That sounds awesome. I oh, just read, I just read, um, re- this is related. I just read, um, Rebecca Mackay's newest book and oh, one of the, it's, how it's, was it? I'm so curious. About it's it. great. I really enjoyed it. One of the things that happens in the book is, um, the main character kind of gets canceled. Nice. And it's, it's a book about, um, like a, a this death that happened at, at, at a high at her high school. And, um, but the, like one of the most tense, scary things that happens is this almost canceling. So I, I love that that's what your novel is about too, because that is such, I mean, speaking of the now, right. Like Alex oh, was talking about God. that earlier, that is something that I feel like we're all really scared of and it yeah. deserves to be are examined. You? <laughs> yes. Lizzie, are you scared of that? 
Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so scared. I'm always afraid I'm going to go on my Twitter one day and it's going to be like 5 million notifications. No. It's like, oh my God, I didn't know I was terrible in this way. Oh, I hate this. You know, like, or that some big misunderstanding because, you know, sometimes that happens too. And, um, and I, you know, I just feel like it's, it's, it's a great, what a great plot. It's so fertile, especially right now. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I hope I, I hope that's it'll be good. People will want it. Oh um, yeah, I want it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have won three pushcart prizes. Yes, and I, I and I don't think I've ever met anyone who has because I always hear been nominated. You know, so and so has been nominated for a pushcart prize. Mm-hmm. But what a flex that you've won three. What what is it like? Tell us what it's like to win pushcart prize. It's very nice. I love the push cart um, whole, I don't know what it's called. I guess it's just called the push cart pride, but the whole association is, is one man who is just in his shed and he has only a typewriter and he doesn't use computers or emails. Anything. It's like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. What the fuck are you talking about? I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, I know. It's so crazy. And I met him <laughs> once and he's just like the gentlest person who's just like a saint for literature just doing all that like because I think they get like 4,000 nominations a year and he's just sifting through this and like so he literally has a push cart (laughs) yeah I feel like he probably does because one time early on like after I won the, the first time he asked me if I would be a reader for the next year and I said yes and he was like I'll send you a box of submissions and I got this box it was like 50 pounds and I was like wow I thought it was going to be like the full literary magazines but it was just the clippings of the specific ones and I was like oh my god I was so I was in grad school and I was so overwhelmed I was like (laughs) because there's like poetry fiction nonfiction, all mixed into one box and I don't know anything about poetry or anything so I finally I had to pick two from this whole box and I finally was just like I don't know how to choose so I'm just gonna pick the two that made me cry because I'm just gonna assume that that meant something but (laughs) even those two didn't even get in so it's like I don't know it's unreal how much he material he deals with I think first I would cry about the amount of material and then I, I would be like, whose font do I like the best? Because <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> I can't do it. I know I read for the Flannery O'Connor um, short fiction prize oh, that cool. Roxane Gay was the judge of. And I picked, I thought I picked like, I think I had to pick five. And I thought the ones I picked, I was like, oh my God, she's going to love these. These are surely going to be finalists. And none of them were. Whoa. Just so many. And there was like four or five other readers reading at the same time as well. Oh my um, God. It's crazy. And it's all like the cream of the crop, you know, like it's, it's just crazy how many people are writing. Everybody it's- stop, stop it. <laughs> I know we just, stop. we just did, we just read for the MFA program at Vanderbilt and we read 320. We didn't have to read them all, but there were 320 submissions because there are multiple people reading them, but wow. um, they, we could only pick three people and that's even at the, oh my God. Of the MFA. And I was oh. like, I'm already feeling heartbroken about people I'm cutting in round one. Like, oh. how are you going to do this? It was so hard. Wow. It makes me how feel small both is better the and worse. The program is only three 
three fiction, three poetry get accepted a year. Oh so my god! Very small. Yeah. That is wild. Yeah, it's kind of nice because we get to fully fund everybody and. Oh no, that I mean, I feel but, like it's probably amazing once you're actually in. But holy crap! But that yeah, is, the, chan- the chances yeah. are like unreal. It's just like even anyone in the top fifteen was like any of these people could could be amazing, and that was even even probably 50 100 people would be amazing it's like this is a really hard job wow i that would be so stressful for me (laughs) what was the did you get some good advice from any of your colleagues at vanderbilt about making helping make those tough decisions or how they kind of parsed at that level yeah they said they they did say some really helpful stuff like one was like if it's not blowing you out of the water it's never gonna make it through so so you know don't split hairs over things that are not blowing you away in a way but then they also were saying which I hadn't thought about like think about what are the qualities of writing that like you can't teach so like Mm. if someone has like fascinating prose or this feral wildness or just weirdness or deep emotional heart that can affect you. It's like, those things are probably harder to teach than like plot and structure that you Mm. could help someone with, or, or like, what could even I specifically feel like I can teach because I'm the person they're going to learn from. So that it was helpful to think about it in that context. Do you get to choose like, like fun subjects for your, for your writing classes? Like I got to take a dead rock stars writing class one time. Ooh. What what was that? Did you read like books about dead rock stars and stuff? Yeah, like or we would like read lyrics and stuff like Jeff Buckley. Ooh, um, that's you know. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like do you get to do stuff like that? I haven't done any kind of I so my MFA class this last semester, I did the theme of propulsive interiority because that's like a craft thing I really wanted to study and they seemed into it. So we read three books that I think do that well. And then we talked about the craft of it. So that was the closest I've gotten, but it wasn't as cool as the dead rock stuff. (laughs) No, No, propulsive interiority. Who are the books that you like, who are the writers that you were reading? So the first one we read was revolutionary road by Richard Yates. Yep. Um, love that book so much and I I also feel like it's like it's such a boring story but it's so propulsive and in the because of how the minds of the characters change and are so dynamic and then we read The School for Good Mothers by Jasmine oh, yeah. did you did, did have you read that one I we have she was yeah, on yeah, she was on the pod yeah. oh that's awesome yeah I love her I love that amazing book. such a good book yeah, and then the last was a separation by Katie Kitamura, which I also yes. love that book so much. So, I mean, that class sounds even more fun than Dead Rock Stars, in my opinion. Oh, that's so nice! What a great way to think about narrative, propulsive interiority. Yeah, because I feel like to me, it's like the secret to plot. Because it's like for so long when I was writing my first failed novel, I was just like. I was just being like, oh, so many things have to happen. It's a novel. So it's like, there's all these dramatic events. And then it was like, actually the events don't matter. It's how the events like shape the mind of the characters and mm-hmm. how they think about themselves in the world. That's actually giving the events meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want, I really wanted to 
to study it. And, and interiority has been something I struggled with throughout my career. And so I felt like it's probably something that MFA people at the MFA level are thinking about and reckoning with a lot. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I feel like I need to go back and get another MFA. Oh God, <laughs> stop. No, because I, I didn't have enough time to like think about that kind of stuff, you know? You can think about it tomorrow. That's true. Maybe Great Place Books can give us a class on it. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's Nashville's writing scene like? It's very cool. Like there's, um, I mean, I've just got here in August, so I'm still figuring it out, but there's, there's a cool, um, organization called the porch. That's kind of like, you know, whatever. Susanna Feltz. Yes. You yeah, know, I do. Yeah. She, oh, um, she's so awesome. She had a book on featherproof and my first book is on featherproof and I've just always admired her and, and, you know, followed her from afar. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. She's so, so cool. I love her and I love that organization. And then we have, um, a cool group on the faculty that I really love. And and there's a couple writers. I don't know if you know the writer, Lydia Peel, but she lives in town and I mm. love her stuff. And um, so there's, there's some people around and, and then we get to bring really cool writers through Vanderbilt through a couple of different series. Like there's a new trans and gender non-conforming series that's starting this year that I'm really Ooh. excited about. So it, it's cool. People come through. And I also, I also really like how it's like a songwriting town because it's like, I get kind of overwhelmed when they're in like New York where there's mm-hmm. so many writers, but it's like cool to be in a town. It's like also why I like LA because it's like there's arts people, but they're not like in my field, but I can relate to them still. Mm-hmm. So I, I enjoy that. Well, Lydia. Well, oh, wait. God. Were did you going to we close? Do we just co-rap? We just tried to rap at the same time. Any? Um, we're professionals we're podcast Um, married (laughs) (laughs) we both want to say thank you so much for coming on and and granting us with your presence and um what a joy it has been to be able to read your book and talk to you about it and this has been so great it's been such a dream thank you so much for having us so fun to talk to you both likewise yeah thank you lydia we're excited for whatever's next we will be uh paying attention for sure give me that folk singer novel (laughs) (laughs) that was great that was amazing what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I literally sometimes yeah. when you're talk when you are talking sometimes on the podcast, I it's so hard for me not to just like jump in and fuck with you at this point. Do it. Oh no no no! I mean like, <laughs> no, I don't mean. I just mean like because like I have a better sense of maybe what you're actually thinking or not thinking sometimes with what you're saying. It's just so. God, what a, what a what a reward it is to get to know someone in this strange way and uh you know have the ability to occasionally make them laugh. I would like you to do that as much as possible. Okay. Just like chime in, redirect, <laughs> talk over me. <laughs> oh Our listeners want more Alex, okay? That's what they want. They want more Alex. I doubt it. <laughs> Jesus <me>. Christ. <laughs> The only thing I have is um, I saw that Chris Belk is going to be teaching 
Yes. With Great Place. Yeah, we're really excited. That's amazing. It's writing a queer memoir? Yes. Uh, uh, we got in touch with Chris, um, and he's going to teach a long-form queer memoir class for us. And That's awesome. It's awesome. Um, I feel like Chris is just such an interesting writer. Obviously, we had him on the show and read his book, have a sense mm-hmm. of what he's all about. But I just feel like I have so much respect for the fact that he is a parent of a Four. infant. Yes. And yes. And three other children. Yes. Um, it balances writing and is like very dogged in getting writing done. I see mm-hmm. Chris posting about, you know, getting words in for what, you know, while, while breastfeeding or, doing whatever, you know, walking around with the baby mm-hmm. and uh, it's just awesome. And I know we have so many listeners who are parents of young kids who do similar things. And I think Chris is just a amazing example of. Yeah. And, and his book is great. So you are in good hands if you are looking to write your own memoir. Um, yes, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. I just wanted to call that out. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. I got to go watch Hulu. All right. Go watch Hulu, bud. See ya. (laughs) Bye. Bye. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Higley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.